Proverbs chapter 21, let's begin in verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of, those of everyone who is hasty sure, surely to poverty. Getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. The violence of the wicked will destroy them because they refuse to do justice. The way of a guilty man is perverse, but as far as for the pure, his work is right. Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. When the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise. But when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. The righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. A gift in secret pacifies anger and a bribe behind the back strong wrath. It is a joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we want nothing but your perfect will in our lives. We want to be made into disciples, growing disciples, Lord, mature disciples. We know that's what you have in mind for each one of us. We pray that you would use these verses for your purposes in in that regard. Help us, Lord, to listen, to find out what we can obey, Lord, and help us to be free from the deception that knowledge is all that matters. Lord, you measure our maturity on what we obey, not merely what we know. So we pray, Lord, that you would free us and help us and work against the self-deception that we can engage in, Lord. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We've looked through all these chapters so far in the book of Proverbs, and we're just trying to glean all of the wisdom that's there. And it's, I mean, when you're talking about God's word, you're talking about something that's eternal, that will outlive the heavens and the earth. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And so we think we can get a handle on it. We think we can know it. We think we can potentially master it. But then we look at it again and we're like, I didn't even see that. That's amazing. And there's just layers and layers of truth. You know, it's interesting that when we just talk about the word of God, we talk about how it it's contains truth. But it's more than containing truth. It is truth. When you just have a book that contains truth, that presupposes the assumption that some of it is not true. But God's word is all true. It it cannot be broken. It is perfect. It's flawless. And so for us as believers, as disciples, that we're wanting to grow in our relationship with him, it's so wise for us to be able to look at his word, look at his wisdom in his word, and be able to say to him as an expression of worship, I want to be everything that you want me to be. I want to be the person you've called me to be. Because we can think that we know what's best for our lives. We think we can know the best plan for our lives and all of that. But 
those of us that have walked with the Lord a little while, we recognize that even as believers, we can pray for things and, and God says no, and then we're thankful he didn't answer our prayers. So for us, before we came to know the Lord, well, how, how well did we do with our own wisdom on running our lives? Not very well. And, and so God knows that we weren't designed to live this life in our own wisdom. So that's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We've already seen that. But there's so many people that claim to be wise and claim to be so knowledgeable about life and they got it down and they have YouTube channels and they write books and they do, you know, all these things, TED Talks. You heard of TED Talks? You know, that's like, I mean, I'm not saying you can't learn anything from TED Talks, but I'd like to to see uh, Billy Graham be invited to do a TED Talk. That, that That would be TED repenting. That would not be Ted uh, talking there. It would be the repentance of people that hear the truth. But that's their kind of their version of what we get to experience all the time. When we're around God's people and we're in a Bible study, we're, we're in church or whatever, and we're learning truth and all of that. Ted Talks are kind of like the world's version of that, where they try to get wisdom and all of that. But again, if it's devoid of having the fear of the Lord, then it's not wise at all. And it's, there is worldly wisdom, but it can only go so far. And it can't help us, especially as our desire to grow in our walk with him uh, needs to increase. So great introduction to just the wisdom of God's word and just how we can really listen. It's not just listening. You ever listen to a sermon for someone else? Oh, so-and-so, man, they need to hear this. Well, what's happening when we're doing that? We're missing what we're supposed to be looking at related to our own lives. I've done that myself, even when I'm teaching. This would be really good for so-and-so. And and the Lord's like, no, it's good for you. You And that's the thing with someone that is responsible with teaching God's word is that you have to have God's word study you way before you begin to study God's word and teach God's word to, to somebody else because you have to have all that settled at least for that day or that week or whatever um, and, and recognize your need for all these things as much as anybody else. So it's wise for us to listen all the time. And it's something that we have to train ourselves to do, especially if we've been in the church a while. It's really easy just to zone out, to, to just you're thinking about all these kinds of things or you're thinking about how it applies to other people and, or, and, or even you're thinking how do I learn this information? I want to learn this information. I agree with this information, but we're not looking at, am I obeying this information? And yes, it may be true that we obeyed it in the past, but are we obeying it now, currently? James talks about the imagery of God's word being a mirror, so that you look in it and you, he says it's unwise for the man to look in it and see himself and then forget what he looks like and walk away. And the whole imagery is brilliant because it's speaking of our present tense condition. When you look at a mirror in the morning, you're not looking at the image from yesterday. It may not be any better for you. It may be just as bad or worse than yesterday's image, but it's a present tense snapshot. That's what God's word is, because at any moment in time, I'm, I could be or not, you know, I could be obeying or not obeying God's word. So we have to listen to it and receive it as one that, am I doing it right now? And when I, on the way to church, was I in a fight with my spouse? Or not? 
And then we go through the teaching of loving one another, forgiving one another, all these things and, and everything. And you're like, yes, yes, I agree, I agree. And we're not remembering that we were almost needed a referee in the back seat when we were on our way to church. So it's, it's easy for all of us to do. Now, let's start in verse 1 here, chapter 21. It says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water, he, that is God, the Lord, turns it, that is the heart of the king, wherever he wishes. This is so comforting for us when we have leaders that we don't care for. Like, let's just, we usually think of government leaders. So we're comforted in the fact, and maybe not just our own leaders, but leaders on other parts of the, in other parts of the world. We're comforted in the fact that God does hold the heart of the king in his hand. He is sovereign. And, and so we have to recognize that. It's also comforting when we're in authority. And, and we recognize that I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to fall short. And, and I'm so thankful that God will compensate with his sovereignty. And he will, he will compensate in ways that can help with my shortcomings. You know, we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 2 to pray for all those that are in authority. And it says... We need to pray for those that are only in our political party. No, it doesn't. Got your attention. A few of you almost said amen to there. <laughs> All those that are in authority, even the ones we don't like, even the ones that we feel are working against our country's best interests, we have to say, God, help them. If they don't know you, save them. Help them to have your mind and your heart and all of that. We need to pray for those in authority. You know, God has demonstrates it so clearly in the scriptures that he is sovereign. I mean, you think of Nehemiah there when we went through Nehemiah verse by verse and we saw how he was downcast because he heard about the state of Jerusalem and everything. And here Artaxerxes says, why are you downcast and all of those things? And ends up steering his heart to be able to help Nehemiah rebuild the wall and give him all the things that he needed, the finances, the, the security on the way to Jerusalem, all these things. And, and, and so God was sovereign over that. Um, we see Ahimelech in Genesis where Abraham lies and says that, I mean, he lies, he deceives. I mean, Sarah was his half-sister, but he, he said, this is my sister, and, and uh he lies, and, and, and God gives Ahimelech a dream and warns him about Abraham and Sarah. And he's like, why didn't you tell me that she's your wife and all of that? And he was the, this man of faith that we know is the father of, of faith. In his weakness, was fearful, but God was sovereign and knew what was hanging on all of that. There was a lot hanging on the fact that, uh, you know, Abraham stayed alive and had the, you know, the you know, Isaac and Jacob and all of that and all those sons, and, and that was the lineage of the Messiah. There's a lot hanging on that um, relationship with Sarah. We also see that, that God moves on Cyrus to finance and to finish um, all the things in Jerusalem. We see God work in his life. We see Nebuchadnezzar, and he says Nebuchadnezzar to communicate to th- this command should be given to all people that the God of Daniel is to be worshipped. And he fought against that, and God was sovereign over that, and he ends up grazing in the field as an animal and all of that. So um, we see his sovereignty. Even in the New Testament, we see with Caesar Augustus, how in the world is God going to get 
uh, Joseph and Mary down to Bethlehem, Ephrathah. That's right in Judea there, the city, you know, right where David was from in Bethlehem. How is he going to get that to happen when they're in Nazareth? Well, he's going to move sovereignly on, on Caesar Augustus to have a census. So they have to go back to where they're from. And then he, uh, you know, moves in such a way to where the Lord Jesus is born in, in Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. So all these things are beautiful. And that, and so how does that affect our lives? It affects our lives because we need to recognize that when we look at the news and we're discouraged about the way the world's going and we just, it seems and appears on the surface that it's careening out of control. And we need to be comforted in the fact that God is sovereign over every authority. And all of this is leading somewhere. God's not on the throne going, oh my goodness, I can't believe what Putin did. Oh no, you know, I can't believe what this king did or this, oh man, um, this, this whole set of nations, the United Nations, they decided this. How am I going to get through this? What am I going to do? All of this is leading somewhere. It's leading towards a one-world government. It's leading towards a one-world ruler, a, a, a currency, electronic currency for everybody that's going to be basically uh, a sign of worship to the Antichrist. I believe we're going to be gone before that happens. I believe we're going to be gone. But that's, it's headed somewhere. There's a reason why Russia is aligning with, with uh, Iran and, and all these countries because Ezekiel 37 and 38 say that those countries are going to invade Israel. And, and God's going to defend Israel, and God's going to completely just make it obvious that he's the one that, that acted on Israel's behalf. So all this is lead. We need to be comforted in the fact. Not just that, but also how it affects our lives, our individual lives. You know, taxes or regulations or all these things that encroach upon our freedoms that we see. God's sovereign over all these things. And, and it needs to be a comfort to us. And that's why he writes now, when... when um, <laughs> When Paul was, was alive and Peter and all of that towards the end of their lives, I mean, Nero was the, was the ruler. And in that context, Paul wrote and said, submit to the governing authorities in Romans. So God doesn't need a Christian-friendly government for us to prosper. But many Christians believe that. If we don't have a Christian-friendly government, we can't prosper. No, not, it's the opposite. God brought persecution to the early church so they would go out and be scattered like seed and, and, and plant the gospel everywhere in the world. And so the, the, the more persecution occurs, the better we do related to thriving as believers because we're more dependent upon him. And no, it's not fun for any of us. We don't desire persecution. But persecution and hardship and all of those things create a perfect environment for us to be the, the most fruitful that we can be. Verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. So this is, again, the danger of self-rule, the danger of self-deception. We think we're experts on what should happen in our own lives. And God says, no, I have something so much better than what you could do for your own life. If you would just take up your cross daily, die to yourself and what you think is best for yourself, apart from me, and you would just depend upon me and watch what I do, I'll do far more and greater than you could ever possibly imagine. And we have a hard time trusting God because we sometimes think he doesn't have our best interests in mind. But the reality is, look at the cross. If he was willing to die for our sins on the cross, then he has our best interests in mind because that was our greatest need. 
We can trust him. If he, tr- if he was trustworthy enough to die in our place, he's trustworthy enough to take our lives and make him into what he wants them to be. So here he says, every, every way of a man is right in his own eyes. That's moral relativism. Oh, it's a very popular term uh, taught in colleges all day, every day. But the Lord weighs the hearts. The Lord knows our hearts. It's not just our actions. Look, at he says, the Lord weighs the hearts. He knows our hearts. He knows the deepest parts of who we are, and he weighs those things. And so he wants us to live lives that are pleasing to him. Our potential for self-deception is pretty, pretty staggering. And that's why we need his word, and we need others in our lives to tell us the truth. Verse 3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Boy, that's that true. <laughs> Related to God. He is much more interested in our righteousness and ex- executing justice and doing the right thing than he ever is related to our sacrifices. At the beginning of the book of Isaiah, he says, I deplore your sacrifices and your feast days. They're an abomination to me. So he didn't care about their sacrifices that they made because their hearts were far from him. And he ended up judging them. So it, what's what's tempting for us and what's easy for our flesh our sinful nature is 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 religious ritual we have to guard against religious ritual because going through the motions is one of the biggest enemies of our growth as disciples because we're so good our flesh is so good at going through the motions you know i just went through a a driving school uh for my other job that i have and um I had to focus this week on not not staring, but scanning. And it's so easy. You don't realize how much you do that. Have you ever gotten home and you realize that you don't remember even making decisions on how to get home? You, like your mind's somewhere else the whole entire time. You're like, how did I get here? I don't even remember making decisions to whatever. Because you're just in a whole other world. And you're, you're thinking all these things but you're, you're going through the motions of driving, but you're not really driving in a safe way because we're, you're not being, you can't be defensive if you're zoning out. And so that's how we can do, we, we can do that religiously. We can go through the motions, especially if you're raised in a, in a religion that's very, very uh, ritualistic. It's very hard for people coming out of those backgrounds to focus on God's looking at my heart. Like you just mentioned the verse before. He's looking at my heart. And my, if my heart isn't engaged the right way, that everything that I'm doing outwardly is meaningless to God. It doesn't matter. What if, if you're married, what if your spouse did things outwardly, but there was no heart connection to you at all? It would hurt you. It would like, this isn't what I want. This, I want your heart. I don't want just your actions. I want your heart. Or your children, when you're training them up, you want them to see the value of the wisdom you're trying to give them in these actions that you're having them do, not just go through the motions and do that. And we can, we can do that. We can go through an entire service and not once direct our hearts and minds to God. If we are really honest with ourselves, we, we've probably done that a few times where we just have gone through the motions and we're singing songs, we're not meaning them from our hearts at all, we're focused on our, our voices and how good they sound compared to this person, or, or do I like the song or not, do I, whatever, we can be, I mean, myself included, we can be so distracted and we're just going through the motions and we, we don't realize that God's looking at all of that. It matters to him 
for meaning what we're saying to him. It matters to him if we're really opening up his word and really having, wanting him to speak to us because we want to glorify him with our lives in every way instead of just putting my time in. Well, this is what I do. I just go to church. I just go through the mo- That is not what it's about. It's, a, it's about our hearts, and all of us are growing in that. We can go through our entire day and not even acknowledge the Lord or aim to obey him at all. And we can go through a whole day without with sinning left and right, without even thinking about it or thinking about it, not caring and all of that. And we're, we think everything's fine with me and him. And we have to recognize that it's not. We should be confessing sins regularly because we sin regularly. And, and we can just get in this rut. And, and look what God's saying. He's saying to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice or ritual or what we give up. And sometimes we think of it this way. Um, well, I did wrong this week, God. I did really bad this day on Wednesday. So I want you to know that Friday and Saturday and Sunday, I'm going to do all these things for you and make up for it somehow. And, and that doesn't work with God, and it doesn't even work with people. Think about your spouse. You know, I, um, you know, I, I spoke very disrespectfully to you, honey, um, but I'll make up for it. I'll take you out to dinner. Does that work? I mean, she may like going out to dinner, and that may bless her, but it's not making up for what you did. She doesn't want to be disrespected that way. You need to apologize for what you did and what you said and desire to say to speak to her in a better way. That's what matters to her is the change in behavior, not you taking her out to dinner. Because if you just take her out to dinner, she's still thinking about while you're eating the you know, clam chowder what you said. I mean, I'm not speaking from experience. It's all theory for me. But, you know, <laughs> that's what I've heard. That's what I've read about. No, I lost my temper and was impatient with you. What can I do to make it up to you? What can I do for you? They say, just don't do it again. Just do the behavior. Don't do the behavior. That's how it is for God. You know, penance doesn't work with our spouses, and it surely doesn't work with God. That's why penance is heretical. Because you can't make up for your sin. Jesus died for our sins. You can't pay for your sins. He paid for it once. He said, it is finished on the cross. He didn't say to be continued. He said it is finished. We can't make up for sins. So that's what he, he wants us to have hearts directed to, towards him, not just religious, not religious ritual at all. Remember the time where Jesus noted that there was a, a Pharisee that said, you know, thankful, thank you, God, that I'm not a, you know, it's like traditional thing about I'm not a woman, I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a dog, and you know, and all these things, and was really proud, looking up to heaven or whatever. And then there was another guy that was just so humble and just said, "Have mercy on me, a sinner." And he said, "That one that said, have mercy on me, that one went away justified," because the other one was just praying with himself and just going through the motions. It wasn't there wasn't a heart connection there. God wants our hearts. Verse four: A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. And this is interesting because if you see here, you see um, that a haughty look, that's a proud look, a proud heart. The, proud, the haughty look is something that someone can discern from without, on the outside. But they can't look at our hearts, a proud heart. God knows that. So people that, have, that work and do things dishonestly, 
and are proud, God says, I'm not going to bless that. I'm not going to get behind that. And there are believers who do, do things immoral or they are not good business people and are taking shortcuts and breaking the law and they're wondering why they're not prospering. Because God sees that and it grieves his heart. We have to do things the right way. He doesn't need or doesn't use shortcuts for us to be blessed. Verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty. But but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. There's a phrase that you may have heard. Haste makes waste. You know, and so it talks about the importance of working hard and being diligent. The plans of the diligent surely lead to plenty. But those of everyone who is hasty, surely to poverty, who makes quick decisions, who doesn't do things the right way, to not be careful with, with not just what they say, but what they do and their motivation and how they deal with people and all those things, those things lead to poverty and struggle. But if you work hard and you do things right, then you'll prosper. Verse 6. Getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. Interesting. Again, dishonest gain. How many times have we seen that? We've gone through the book of Proverbs. Dishonest gain. He hates it. Getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. It's just not going to happen. He looks at and sees what we do, how we treat people, how we conduct ourselves, and it grieves him when we do things that are, that are immoral or unethical and all of that. And he sees every single bit of it. I think, as I've said before, every believer should be the best business person, does the most honest business dealings uh, that, that anyone's ever seen, should be believers. Verse 7. The violence of the wicked will destroy them because they refuse to do justice. Now the word destroy there in the middle of verse 7 in Hebrew is the word or the phrase chew them up. That's what it means. So the violence of the wicked will chew them up because they refuse to do justice. Now they want justice for themselves, but they don't want to be a part of being just towards other people. They want to take advantage of people. That's not just. So it's this recurring theme of doing what's right. The violence of the wicked will destroy them because they refuse to do justice. They are violently securing wealth for themselves. They are doing things that are wrong. Now, you have to remember, back in this day, there was less accountability in many ways because there wasn't all these governmental agencies and watchdogs and all these things that can help uh, you know, deter people. And I mean, they had a very good system back then, don't get me wrong. But it was very easy to get away with things compared to some parts of our culture today. But he's saying God sees it all. You're not getting away with it. I see it. And I'm not going to bless you. And you're going to... God will not be mocked. Whatever he sows, that shall he also reap. That man will not mock God. Whatever we sow, we will reap that. And he says that 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 will happen if we refuse to do the right thing. Now let's look at verse 8. The way of a guilty man is perverse, but as for the pure, his work is right. You know, today, if you were to acknowledge certain behavior as perverse, you'd be criticized. How dare you? How dare you call what I do perverse? Who are you to say? Because I, I, believe, I choose what's right, 
for my own behavior. Again, we've seen that verse. He who decides what is right in his own eyes and all of that. So people say, how dare you say what is perverse? Because it's up to me to decide what's perverse. No, you didn't give yourself your conscience. There's no advantage in an evolutionary worldview to having a conscience. If, if you should be able to prey on the weak because of the survival of the fittest and the reason why that we uh, advance as a species is because we should, you know, for, for reproduction and all of that, like they say, then it shouldn't be wrong to pounce on the weak because I'm the fittest. So there's, there's doesn't make sense. A conscience doesn't make sense in an evolutionary worldview. And there are people in other countries that haven't been shaped by their culture because people blame it on the culture. Oh, it's because the culture has shaped your conscience that it does validate it. It does, it does you know, continue to in, um, confirm it. But we, have a, we know what we don't want other people to do to us. That's universal. Headhunters aren't putting their own heads out there. <laughs> they know. They don't want to be stolen from. They don't want to have someone deceive them. They don't want someone to mistreat their family. They don't have to be raised in any kind of culture that has a bunch of uh, codified laws that show us what we should do or not do. They know what's right. That's been stamped within us. That's one of their evidences that there is a God. Because moral law implies a moral law giver. And and so I have to recognize that I have this law inside of me. And and so that means that there is a standard outside of myself. And we know that that standard is not from us because it's higher than what we live. If it originated from us, it would be at least at the level that we're at morally. But it's not. It's higher. And we can't live up to it. So that means it didn't come from us. It's transcendent from our own minds and hearts. It came from God. So things are perverse. The way of the guilty man is perverse. Don't be afraid to, to speak up and say that behavior is perverse. I'm not saying going around being the sin police and, and being the Holy Spirit and, you know, all the, I'm not talking about that. But when there's a chance to speak up for morality and the things that, that are in this culture and all that, that's part of being salt and light for us. Say that's perverse. Oh, what did you say? I can't believe you'd say that. How dare you call that perverse? God calls it perverse. You know better than God? How dare you judge? Well, when you see someone going 80 miles an hour in a residential zone, do you say that that's wrong? Well, who are you to judge? You're just looking at the law and you're repeating what the law says. The law says they should be going 25 in a residential zone. So you're judging right there. I'm doing the same thing. I'm acknowledging the law. And God's word says that this or whatever you're speaking about is perverse. And and we're guilty. That's important to say we're guilty, not you're guilty alone. We're all guilty. We're all sinners. We all fall short of that standard. So he just comes around and says he's not worried about polling. God isn't worried about how he's going to be polled, you know, in his approval rating. He's not worried about that. He comes in and says, the way of the guilty man is perverse. But as for the pure, his work is right. And that's what we want God to say about our lives and about our work and about what we produce and what we're doing in life is that it's right. It's pure. It's from him it's an overflow of him and it'll stand out if you if you work and live in a righteous way it'll stand out and people will say what's different about you there's just something different about you I can't really put my finger on it well I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ oh I got somewhere to go (laughs) you know you could say Jesus Christ is a cuss word and they're fine with it but you start talking as if he's a real person you could talk about any other religious leader. You talk about Jesus Christ, so everyone has something anywhere else to be. 
They have, they have to, oh, I got to go. I got to change the subject. It's because it's convicting to us. Verse 9. Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. So I'm going to start a 46-part series starting this morning on this verse. How is a fast amen that someone said, man? Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, No, but now let's think of the context here. Um, Solomon, we've noted, had 700 wives, 300 concubines. That was wrong. God never told him to do that. And so it's, it's hard enough to be married to one person for many, you know, at times it's challenging. But man, it's just, you went way over the top with that. And, and so he, you know, in our other verse that we saw, he said it's like, you know, uh, dripping, you know, and he's inside the house. Here he's, he's outside, um, and he's talking about, the, you know, how hard it is to dwell with a contentious woman. And it could be a man, too, obviously. There's plenty of contentious men out there, uh, but it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's hard. You know, it's hard to be with us. It's hard to live with us. We're selfish. You know, when I remember getting married. I just had our, just enjoyed our 23rd anniversary. And I remember um, the first week of, of being married. Uh, man, if you knew Sandy back then, you'd barely, you would be praying for her. Uh, but I remember thinking, because we had this argument over where to put the dirty dishes. You know, I was raised with putting the dirty dishes in the sink. And I could be getting this wrong. And I'll, I'll be corrected if, if I am, but... Um, and or no, I think it might have been the opposite. I can't remember. That's how much it really made a difference in my life. But I remember just going, "What's the difference? You know, you want to put it on the side. I want to put it in the sink. You know, and just fighting about that. And like, I can't believe we're fighting about this. And then you realize when you're cohabiting with someone, just how selfish you are. You're just selfish. You just want things to be a certain way. And what are you talking about? You do this. Of course you. You know, every single time you use the dryer, you take the thing out and you get the lint off of it. You don't do it every other time. You do it every time. And you don't wait. But it's barely on there. It's barely even, you know, there's like, there's like a, a, a square inch of, of lint. We'll just move on. Someone, someone just came in the room. Um, anyway, so let's, let's, let's keep going. <laughs> She's gracious. She's very gracious. I want to read a scripture to get me out of the situation. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the contact of, conduct of their wives. When, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, because he talked about the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. That's the point I wanted to, to, to emphasize here. He talks about, and we'll just talk about women for a second. He talks about, don't be overly concerned about the outward, but he says your beauty should be consisting of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's beautiful in the sight of the Lord as a woman, to have a gentle and quiet spirit. And so that's a great um, verse. But it's true for all of us. He wants us to have a, a spirit among us or in us that is gentle and that is loving and is patient 
And we just have to get good at recognizing that we're far down this road, way further down this road than we should be related to what's going on in our hearts. We should be open to the Lord speaking to us and saying, you're being very contentious right now. The earlier we cut it off and correct ourselves, or if we have to remove ourselves, the better. It just, and I've been there plenty of times where you just think, this is worth it. I'm going down this road, and I'm going full speed ahead down this road. We're going to talk about this in the way that I want to talk about it, and it's going to be great, and it's going to be worth it, and it never is. And, and so he doesn't want us to do that. So very important for us to see. Move on. Okay. Verse 10. The soul of the wicked deserves evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. The soul of the wicked deserves evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. So they're talking about the wicked, or desires rather, evil. And so we're in our homes, and if we're wicked, we're thinking about all these wicked things that we can engage in and all these things that we're doing and everything, and then we can even look at our neighbor and we, and, and we find um, no favor there. You know, and he says that shouldn't be the case. We should be at peace with our neighbors and loving our neighbors and having them love us and all those things. And so he says, we sh- you know, that should be something that's far from us. Of course, as a believer, it should be very far. But he's saying don't be stumbled by wicked people who are like this. This is just how it works. Verse 11. When the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise. But when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. So oftentimes in that day, especially scoffers, because they it always went along with other behavior that they did, they were punished physically related to the, the culture. They were, we've seen all verses related to that of taking stripes and getting punished. There's certain times in that culture where that would happen. And he's saying, so when what happens is when a scoffer is punished, the simple who haven't learned through listening and other, you know, they're, they're, they're not knowledgeable in these things of what's appropriate and all of that. They learn the lesson from seeing those scoffers get punished publicly. But he says the true wise person, look at the last part of verse 11, but when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. So the wise don't have to see other people being punished to learn from those things they can receive that information from people because they're listening. And that's, that's the important thing we can forget is how important it is to really listen for wisdom when we, when we find it. To really learn and ask questions and recognize, this person's really wise. I'm going to ask them a bunch of questions while I have them uh, around me and take advantage of that. That's the wise person because for us, we need to always be asking, Lord, what do you want to teach me through this situation? What do you want to teach me through this person? And be open to to that instruction. Verse 12. The righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. So that's what God does. The righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked. He looks at their, it's not just their literal dwelling, it's their whole family and place and position in the culture and life and all of that. Their house is talking more than just their, their dwelling place, their home. It's their whole life. He says he considers the house of the wicked and he overthrows the wicked for their wickedness. So he's saying crime doesn't pay. The wicked are going to be punished. Um, there's a psalm. Asaph said this in Psalm 73. He said, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. 
for I was envious of the boastful when I, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then later he says, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. I washed and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. So Asaph saw the prosperity of the wicked, what they were saying, how it appeared that everything was great, everything was fine. And he said, thinking about, why have I even cleansed my heart? Why have I gone through all this to do the right thing? It seems like a big waste of time. And he, says, he said that even his, what he would say at that moment, when his, in that moment of doubt, would have actually plagued the congregation. It would have influenced others in a negative way related to how they thought about the, the you know, how worth, how, how worthy uh, or the worth of living a life after God. But he said that all that changed when I went into the sanctuary, when I went into the house of the Lord, and I saw their end. Remember, all this time we've been looking at the end, that God tells us the truth about where things lead, and the world doesn't. The world glamorizes sin, but never says where it ends, where it leads. But God tells us the truth there. Verse 13. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. Wow, this is a very sober warning for us to not be hard-hearted towards those in need. Notice he says cry there in verse 13. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, the cry... That means that the poor is desiring to be helped. They recognize their need. We can wrongly assume that people in those conditions want to be there. It's not true at all. Many of them, many, 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 way more than not, don't want it. I mean, there are some that are avoiding things and all of that. And they want to go into the radar. Those are way, way much the, the minority there. They, they want, and, and we always think of homeless people, this is not just homeless people. This is people that are poor. There are the working poor that are poor and they're working and all of that. And he says that um, whoever shuts his ears to the, to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. We can't harden our hearts. You know, Cornelius in the New Testament wasn't even a Christian yet. And this is what, <laughs> this is what, what happened. He, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked, the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Even before he was a Christian, God was saying, your gifts to the poor as a wealthy centurion military person has affected him. And and God's always working to bring the gospel to people that don't know him. And that's what he does here. He brings them to Peter and all of that. But he's saying that that matters to me. You know, in Galatians chapter 2, Verses 9 and 10, Paul wrote this, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Jesus also said in Matthew 25, when he talks about all these different conditions we can find people in, prison, poor, naked, just all these things. He said, when you've done that to the least of these, you've met these needs, you've done it to me. That's how close he associates with, with the poor. And, and we can have this, at best, apathetic attitude towards them. 
And at worst, we can have a disdain for them. And God sees it. And if that's the case, we don't have the heart of the Lord. Because he cares about their needs. He cares about them. He cares about meeting people's needs and, and not just saying, oh, well, go, go and be fed and be clothed and all that. James says if you do that, your, your, work, your religion is worthless. And, and we have to recognize that we have to be sensitive to needs. And this church is doing a lot of things related to helping the poor, which is great. But we're going to continue to do better because Jesus is always going to lead us to be more effective in reaching everybody, but especially the poor. Because he watches out for them greatly. It's a huge privilege to be in a place where we can bless others. Verse 14. A gift in secret pacifies anger and a bribe behind the back strong wrath. And this can appear that God is validating or saying that we can bribe or whatever and affect justice. But if you really look at the, what this is dealing with and what it's understanding it, or what it's um, the understanding of it, it's talking about someone that's upset. Look at the key words there. Anger and wrath. Anger uh, at the middle part of verse 14 and the last verse of 14 is wrath. Talking about somebody that is angry with you. If you show them your heart, if your heart represents this and give them a gift, you give them something before you are like, think about um, Jacob with Esau. Jacob sent ahead gifts. Now, God had already worked in Esau's heart. He wasn't necessary, but he was trying to help him see that his heart was completely different than what uh, Esau may believe that his heart was, and he sent gifts ahead. So this isn't talking about bribes uh, to, to affect justice. We've seen how many verses on that. We've gone through Proverbs. He hates bribes that try to affect justice. But we can help our situation when we have conflict. If, if we have a heart to bless somebody, if we do that, that can be effective in helping their anger so they can listen to, to what else we have to say. Verse 15. It is a joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. Isn't it a joy to do the right thing? It feels good. And, but supremely, it's not for a good feeling. Supremely, it's for God to be blessed and have his heart blessed and have it, our hearts affect others, to do the right thing in people's lives. Just do the right thing. When you don't know what to do, do the right thing. Usually, if we have to ask if something is the right thing, we usually already know, don't we? We already know. Is that right to do? Like, you already know, or you wouldn't be asking. You usually know that. But he says, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. It's going to happen. We're going to reap those things. And he doesn't want that. Last verse, verse 16. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. That's, that's, the, that's the, what's at stake here. You know, the, James talked about a sin that leads to death. And there is a sin that leads to death. There is types of sin that that speed up our death, or we have a premature death. We can't affect that. And, and he says we have to be careful. We can't wander away from the way of understanding. We need to stay close. We need to stay close to the things of the Lord. I feel so bad for people when they, and you know, all of us at some level at some time do this, but where they, when I mean in an extreme case, we'll just walk away completely from the Lord for a long period of time so unnecessary they're running from love pure love it's insanity to think that 
I'm going to run away from love and have my life be blessed. All he wants to do is bless our lives. He wants us to be fruitful. He wants to bless us. But if we turn away from the things of him, we wander away from this understanding that we have, then we're going to be under his discipline because he loves us. He doesn't discipline those that he doesn't love. What parent doesn't discipline their children that love their children? Everyone does. But he wants us to recognize he's good, he's loving, he wants what's best for us. He's always going to do what's best for us, even when we don't understand what that is for ourselves. He loves us too much to not do what's best in our lives. Well, we'll stop there. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for Proverbs 21. Thank you for all the wisdom, Lord, that's found in it. Help us, God, to be good stewards of what you've spoke to us about. Lord, help us to aim to obey these things and put them into practice, God, by your grace and by your power. Just thank you, Jesus, that you're good and you, you love to conform us into the image of yourself. Lord, our, we yield our hearts to you. We want to be made into the people you want us to be. So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Before we worship in a couple more songs, if you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, what does it mean to be a Christian? It, it means that you've had a spiritual birth. You don't become a Christian by believing in God, by merely believing in God. You don't become a Christian by going to church, being religious, being American, being a good person. Did I miss any? Uh, you don't become a Christian by doing any of those things. You become a Christian by having a spiritual birth. And that happens in a moment in time when you trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross his death, burial, and resurrection, and you trust in that alone to pay your way to heaven, and you receive salvation as a gift. If you believe you could earn it, you haven't received it. If I wanted to give you something you gave me money for, it would cease to be a gift. Over and over again, God's word reveals that salvation is a free gift. So you have to receive it, though. You have to ask Jesus to come and forgive you of your sins. You need to express that you believe that he died on the cross for you, that he was buried and he rose again the third day. And part of that means that you're repenting. You're turning in, in the road of life and you're turning to him. You're surrendering your life and saying, I want to follow you. Jesus didn't apologize for asking the disciples to follow him. He didn't tell them where they were going, how long they'd be there. Nothing. He just said, follow me. And that's what he calls each of us to do as well. So if that's you today, there'll be those of us up front or up in the back who'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with him. Maybe you just need to rededicate your life to him. I don't know, but I just know you need to surrender. We all do every day. And if you need prayer for anything else going on this, in, this, in your week, in your day, that's coming up, things that are coming up you need prayer for, we'd love to pray with you for, the, uh, pray, pray for you related to those things as well. Looking forward to the baptism tonight. Again, the address is in, your, in the church app. Go to Calvary Chapel Manteca in your app store and look under news. And those are all our announcements are. You can see the address. Please come and support those that are getting baptized. They're making a public profession of faith. Bring your towel, bring your lawn chair, a side dish if you can, and just, it's going to be a great time. And uh, maybe I'll do a cannonball. Usually I do a cannonball sometime, as long as it doesn't get on, captured on a picture, you know, and get online. So I'm always trying to make sure, because it's not pretty. We all know that. It's not pretty. So um, looking forward to that time tonight. Please support those that are getting baptized. God bless you this week. Bill?